The reading today is from Colossians chapter 1, and verse 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things in earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, brilliant. Shall we pray together? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word gives us life and reorients us. And we pray that as we reflect on these words of scripture today, you would show us more of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is lovely to see you all today. Great to see your many faces, although you all do look a little bit serious. So why don't you turn to the person next to you and say to them something like, you don't have to, but if you're comfortable to do so, you look great today. (laughs) Ah, you see, now I've given myself the task of getting you all back together, but you do actually all look a bit more cheerful now, so it was worth it. Fantastic. Well, two weeks ago, I had the absolute privilege and honour of going to Cutler's Hall in town on a Tuesday morning. Have you ever been to Cutler's Hall? Okay, so beautiful, beautiful space in town. I got to go there uh, two weeks ago to receive a cheque for the Family Works. That was a really lovely privilege and an honour. And while we were there, a bunch of different charities uh, all receiving their gift from the Master Cutler, getting to shake his hand, and uh, we all had to speak for one minute and one minute only about the organisation that we were representing... At that time, afterwards, we got a tour, a kind of behind-the-scenes tour of Cutler's Hall, which was very, very exciting. I got to go into all sorts of rooms that I had never, ever seen before and didn't know were there. And I don't know if you know what the kind of special emblem for the Cutler's is. Does anybody know? Lots of blank faces. Well, it turns out, I didn't know either, it's an elephant. 
okay? And dotted around Cutler's Hall in all different places are elephants. Some of them are carved into stonework. In one place, they've got like a little kind of toy elephant on a mantle shelf. They've got elephants made of silver. They've got all sorts of elephants all over the place. And we got taken into a boardroom, um, which was from 16-something, and they had like a heraldic shield painted with the names of some of the earliest master cutlers. And on that shield was a painting of an elephant. Except that, as the master cutler pointed out to us, the person who was painting the shield had never actually seen an elephant. So this elephant had four legs and a big kind of round body, and there was something that vaguely looked like a long nose, and there was definitely tusks, because the reason the elephants are so significant for the cutlery industry is because of the ivory. But it had an enormous ear that was basically a human ear, and you could almost hear the process of this person saying, well, you need to give it four legs, and it's got a massive ear and a really, really long nose. How do you paint an elephant if you have never, ever seen one? I mean, imagine for a moment if you were trying to describe something to somebody that they'd never seen. That would be hard enough. But what about if you'd never seen it either? If I put you all into pairs now and asked you all to draw, one to describe and one to draw an alien, I reckon we would probably have 50 or 60 different pictures of an alien. Because nobody has ever seen an alien, have they? No? Okay. I certainly haven't. This is a little bit like what is happening in this text that we've just read from Colossians. The text says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We haven't seen God. I've certainly not seen him. I've seen signs of him. I think I've heard his voice on occasion. I've come to understand some of who he is through the pages of Scripture, but I haven't seen God. I'm pretty sure that most of you won't claim to have seen God either, but we do have lots of ideas what he's like. And if we were all going to describe God, there would be a lot of overlap in how we would describe him, but there would also be some really, really significant differences. I have a very limited brain, a little bit like Winnie the Pooh. I am a bear of small brain. And we all have limits of our human brains. I am massively comforted by the end of 1 Corinthians 13, one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture that reminds us that we know and we see in part. We only see a bit of who God is in this lifetime. 
we're all trying to understand who God is and we all only see, even when they're incredible bits, bits of the picture. We're going through the lectionary at the moment. And as we're going through the lectionary, that means for people who aren't used to the Church of England, and I would not blame you for not being used to it, that means the passages of Scripture that are set for each Sunday in the calendar so that lots and lots of churches up and down the land are all reading from the same bit of the Bible at the same time. And there were three different passages set for today. Now, it's a really exciting puzzle as a preacher to look at the passages that are set in the lectionary and try and work out what's the connection? How are they joined up? What is it that is pulling these bits of the Bible together? Why were they chosen? Well, the three passages today for today are this one, Proverbs 8 and the beginning of the Gospel of John. Proverbs 8 says this, Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. And it goes on to describe how wisdom was formed. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills I was given birth, before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I'd encourage you to go home and read it. It's a fantastic passage of scripture all about how God created wisdom. And then at the beginning of the book of John, at the beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Three different texts and three different ways to think about the person of God. In Colossians, we meet Jesus, the reconciler who creates all things and holds all things together. In that tiny, short passage of scripture that we read, the phrase, all things, is used five times. In John's Gospel, we see Jesus as the Logos, the Word of God, the enacted idea of God, the Creator with God at the very beginning. The, the mind, the thought of God. And in Proverbs, we encounter the wisdom of God, personified as female and present at the creation of the world. Each text describes something about the person of God and God's creative way of bringing the world into being. So which one best describes God? They all do. We all like to think that we're right about what we know. But in reality, we often only see part of the story. 
Now, I am no scientist, so I had to do a bit of learning about this story. But in the early 1950s, some scientists called James Watson and Francis Crick, along with Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins, were working independently on trying to understand the structure of DNA. So Watson and Crick were building models based on the data. But Franklin and Wilkins were using X-ray images to study DNA's structure. And there was a bit of competition and tension between the two teams. Because each group wanted that breakthrough. They wanted to be the group that knew exactly how DNA was formed. But they both had different bits of the same puzzle. So ultimately, Watson and Crick were able to piece together the double helix structure of DNA that has enabled us to really understand the origins of life. But to get there, they had to use Franklin's X-ray data. They were both right. After the discovery, it became clear that both approaches had been absolutely crucial to understanding the complete picture and they had to acknowledge each other's work in order to get them to the point that they ultimately arrived at. In 1962, all four of them received the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for the work that they'd done in uncovering the real knowledge of what DNA is. Scientists among me correct me for the bits I got wrong later. So as we think about how we might process and understand our own relationship to those things that we hold really closely, it's really important to think about what is happening in the world and in the church right now. I don't think I can be the only person that feels a little bit like the world is in a bit of a state at the moment. It's not just me, is it? It's a tricky, tricky time. Nothing feels safe or secure. And one of the things I think that has really um, brought that home for me, if you were going to try and say, what's the problem? What's actually going on? It just seems like systems are broken in every place. Education systems are broken, health systems are broken, asylum systems are broken, judicial systems are broken. None of our systems are working quite right. And system failure means that it's harder and harder for people to get their needs met. Now, the more protected that we are by wealth or by status the longer we may be able to insulate ourselves against the impact of system failure. But it is real, and it impacts on absolutely everyone. One of my best friends is a nurse processing health information for asylum seekers. I was talking to her yesterday about some of the realities that she is working with day by day. And that system is utterly, utterly broken. And it means that we're treating some of the most vulnerable people that there are with far less care 
than we ought to have. System failure impacts everyone and it makes us anxious. It sets people against each other as competitors because resources are lacking. It makes us hostile towards one another. And in the church, we're not protected from this either. Failures to protect people from abuse or to take responsibility for our failings when we've got things wrong. Bitter arguments and conflicts over issues all of these things can mean that the church as an institution doesn't always feel like a safe place. Even in this church, where we're generally quite a nice bunch and we treat one another pretty well, we can find ourselves at odds with what we ought to prioritise or value. For example, we got to baptise a lovely baby last week but when a bunch of people who aren't used to being in church left during the service, it gave many of us some really complicated feelings. And is it okay to feel put out because that behavior violates our social values and feels a bit rude? Or is it an example of us offering radical hospitality to people who don't know or understand Jesus or what the heck we do in this building for an hour on a Sunday morning? Can it even be both of these things at the same time? Both of these things are going on. There is so much that is wrong all around us in relationships and in the world. And we can get caught up in trying to get it and trying to be right, trying to know it all. But we don't need to. Can you just take a breath and drop your shoulders and exhale the responsibility for knowing it all? Because this text tells us really clearly, he holds it all together. He holds it all together. All things can be reconciled through him. We don't ultimately need to know or understand it at all. We can trust in what Jesus has already done. So this Sunday... I want to ask you a question that I'm thinking through for myself. What if reconciliation is more important than being right? What if Jesus is more interested in how we care for one another than how correct our theology is? What if Jesus wants to grow a church where our commitment to right relationships trumps our need to be right about all of the things? What if it's that way round? What would we do differently if we really believed it was that way round? In this text, Jesus is showing us that he is the reconciler. I follow on Instagram a amazing, you might want to watch it for yourselves, 
an amazing uh, organization called The Seam. And The Seam is a little company that mend really hard to mend things. So you might have like a favorite jumper that's got a moth hole in it. And you might think, well, it's got a gaping hole right here. It's completely beyond repair. But what they'll do is they'll stretch it out and they'll put pins around all the sides of the hole and then they'll reweave the wool through and make the jumper look as good as new. It blows my mind. Something that I would never have the patience to do. Something that is completely beyond me. But what happens in reconciliation, in the process of reconciliation, is that those frayed edges, those torn sides, those broken bits, those parts of you and parts of other people, parts of situations that you thought were beyond repair, Jesus takes those threads and he reworks a reparation that is beyond our wildest imaginings. We don't have to do that. We may have to say yes to it. We may have to participate in it. And sometimes having our frayed edges pulled back together is not particularly comfortable. But he is the master of the repair. He is the one who brings the reconciliation. There are many many stories in our world going round, impacting us and shaping us. But the real story of the gospel is a reconciliation story. And Jesus is the author and we're invited to participate in it. Verses 21 and 22 of the passage read as followed as follows, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. He presents you to God without blemish and free from, free from accusation. Living in the reconciliation story means that we bring our torn and our tattered edges, our bad habits, our broken thought patterns, our mistreatment of others, our desire to be in control of everything. We bring all the messed up stuff we get caught in, as it is, into God's presence. And we allow what Jesus has already done to be the defining word. That's what he offers us. So today, if you are experiencing voices that accuse you, if you are so aware of the holes in the jumper of your life, the invitation from Jesus is to come into his presence where you can be reconciled without blemish and free 
from accusation. Amen. We're going to take a time now to respond before we go into the worship. So if the worship bands want to get ready, um, but we're going to have a time of quiet prayer before uh, we, we begin our worship again. And you might want to just close your eyes for a moment. And on your own, in your own mind, I, I had, uh, I've been processing this the last couple of days, just seeing Jesus walking around in this building right now. Jesus is with us. And if you, in prayer, want to ask Jesus, where are you now, Lord? What, what is it that you're doing? Invite Jesus to be alongside you. And as you recognize his presence, there may be a situation or an area of your life where something's just not quite right. Whatever it is, ask, ask him to show you what he wants you to look at. And then just hold it before Jesus. Take a look at it with him. And as we spend just a little bit of time in quiet, invite him as the great reconciler to show you how he sees that thing. Invite him to show you his perspective. <laughs> 